Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science. We'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. I just wanted to follow up a little bit from what I talked about last time, which was how we measure micronutrient deficiencies. So those are the vitamins most people think about, and other things as well, but so we call them micronutrients. So choline is in there, and ALA, and things like that that are not necessarily a vitamin, but they are a nutrient as well. So some people think, why do you do this? And so I want to back up and saying, you know, we've come into a new era of malnutrition. That is, there's, it's not just inner city that is malnourished and inner city kids and people are more malnourished than the suburban and rural, depending on the rural. And that is primarily because of processed foods. Okay. So that's one reason. So processed foods, I'm not going to go, I've talked about that on a number of other podcasts, but the point here is that it is food devoid of nutrition for the most part. They have to add some things back in. So when they talk about milk has vitamin D, no, it didn't have vitamin D until they put vitamin D in it. They have cereals that have folate and whatever else they put in. It didn't have those things until they put it in it. So the fact that they're adding back nutrition to things that don't have nutrition doesn't make it nutritious. It makes it bogus with frosting, more or less. That's one of the reasons for now nutrition today. The other is medications. That is drug-induced nutrient depletions are not made up. It's quite well documented. You can Google that. There's books out on it now. So that's the second reason. And of course, the third reason isn't directly about malnutrition, but it it's about things that block a healthy uptake of nutrition, and that would be environmental toxins. And there's a long list of things there. Whether you want to start with things like environmental estrogens, xenoestrogens, plasticizers, whether you want to heavy metals, the pesticides, which are basically neurotoxins or gastrointestinal toxins. And so it all adds up. And to that point, let me give you a fairly recent report that is January 12th, 2021. So it's less than a week old from the time I'm recording this. And apparently there is an ethanol facility in Nebraska, a place called Mead, Nebraska. And what it did, it it used not only GMO corn, they were going to make ethanol. So ethanol from corn. That's where you get your ethanol at the gas station, by the way. It comes from corn. But in order to get the ethanol out, they extract the toxin in it, which is kind of funny when you think about 
putting into cars, which are pollution creating. Anyway, small point. But in order to do this and make it a pure extraction process for all the steps it has to go through, they have to eliminate other toxins that are involved in the process that will impede just that process. So what are the other things? Well, the GMO seeds that are used, or the Monsanto seeds for the most part, they have a number of pesticides on them. And so what they're doing is they're kind of cleaning the seeds so they can be used for ethanol extraction. And so, as you can imagine, wherever they put the stuff that are the pollutants for the seeds, because they want they want a clean net product of ethanol, right? Alcohol on the other side. Wherever that goes is byproduct, it's the waste, and it's the pollutant. Well, it gets to be so big, you know, these mounds of this shredded stuff that what happened was, so here is the uh, story, uh, Mead, Nebraska, plant use of chemicals on seeds is yet another reason to rethink farming practices. This is from Environment America. It's Washington ethanol plant in Mead, Nebraska, caused water and soil contamination in the surrounding farming community, according to an expose from the Guardian newspaper. Funny that the British paper is covering this, not an American paper. This is secondary. You know, reading a British paper to report it into the American paper. There's something about that. The facility reportedly accepted seeds treated with the class of bee-killing pesticides known as neonicotinoids, or neonics, as they say, from agriculture companies and surpluses. The level of neonics measured in this property far surpassed those considered safe by the EPA. As a result, residential wells and other underground aquifers that supply water locally and across the Midwest are at risk of contamination. So it's a big deal. And they also talk about within so many miles of this particular facility, there's bee die-off. You know, so it's, they've, in order to clean the corn seeds to make the ethanol, they had to hyper-concentrate all the pollutants. That's what's happening. And all the pollutants went into the drinking water and so on and so forth, went into the air, and that killed all the beehives within miles of this facility. So that's actually a very big story. You can find that. So what you would say is Mead, Nebraska, plants use of chemical on seeds is yet another reason to rethink farming practices. The Guardian uh, name of that article is There's a Red Flag Here, How an Ethanol Plant is Dangerously Polluting a U.S. Village. And again, about Mead, Nebraska. So feel free to read that. That's the environmental. So we talked about processed food. We talked about, I mentioned processed food. We talked about medications. I've covered that before. That is drug and Reduced nutrient depletions, and then general pollutants and how that gets to you, and that blocks whatever nutrition you have in various aspects. We can be much more specific on that, and perhaps we will in the future. I'm just pointing out three general categories. So when we talk about the new era of malnutrition, it's no longer about people not having food, i.e. calories. It's about not having nutrients, not having the vitamins and all these other things. So when we look at people with the intracellular micronutrient assessment, we're really going deep. And I expect everybody has deficiencies. When So when they come in and they're on two or three or four medications, bang, they're going to have a number of pretty known and probably unknown uh, nutrient deficiencies that we'll find if their diet and if they're honest enough to talk with me or at least have disclosed that in their application, you know, they're and giving me a week of their diet diary prior to starting the program, I get to see, you know, that they're 
highly processed food. So that's another thing. And so in terms of environment, that is not as black and white. You basically ask, you know, where do they live? What do they do? What's their occupation? And could be the environmental toxins or could be a side effect of the food they're eating. So it's there. So those are three factors. What I also wanted to show you is that, you know, here's people come into keto. So this is the keto naturopath speaking, right? It's my podcast. When people come in, oh, I want to, I don't want to get Alzheimer's. I want mental clarity. I really need mental clarity. So they think they're going to do this one thing and they're going to get mental clarity. Well, I think, you know, being in nutritional ketosis, which is low level ketosis, kind of for life as a strategy is brilliant and it is very helpful. However, that's not the only thing. Let's not be so overly simplistic and think that's it. Uh, but if you've been basically pre-diabetic all your life and now you're changing, you will obviously notice some things like that. And I think it's highly valuable to really reconsider the role that carbs, carbohydrates play in your life as in eliminating them completely if you want, or at least down to leafy green vegetables, okay? Organic leafy green vegetables. But here's some articles. Here's one from University of Oslo. Why would I be interested in that? Well, that's one of my former alma maters. I went to University of Oslo, University of Bergen, University of Tokyo, University of Toronto, and the University of New Hampshire, which is where I started and finished. And that's where I grew up, is in New Hampshire. So the title of this is Vitamin B, Amino Acids, and Obesity. And it goes all through the roles they play. And this came out in 2011. So it's not new news. It's just well-documented. I picked it out because it was more to the point than others. Okay, and here's another one I will get you. Oh, this is an article from New York Times. And the date of this is 2016, September 6th. And it's called Vitamin B12 as Protection for Aging Brain. Absolutely. And the best source of B12 comes from meat sources, not from plants. And as I mentioned with vegans and vegetarians, is that you can bet they're going to be deficient in carnitine, they're going to be deficient in B12, and they're probably going to be deficient in folic acid. Talked about that before. These two articles were both linked to the last podcast, okay? So you have access to that or go back and find it. So I don't have to go through that, but I'm saying there's other issues around mental clarity, i.e. people who come in to reverse their Alzheimer's. And so, yes, be aware of carbs. Yes, be aware of saturated fats. I told you about that. And the fact that caprylic acid, triglycerides, C8, can stop Parkinson's shakes, which is dramatic because of how it feeds neurons. And it's just a little multifactorial. So be a little bigger than just one thing, because that's where people, it's interesting, people that don't know me or I don't know them and they go, oh, I tried keto. It didn't work. Well, what did you do exactly? And they don't want to talk about it. Well, that's brilliant. That's pretty insightful. Often people just want to, and, and they, they do this with doctors as well. They doctor shop in the sense of, oh, there's another doctor who couldn't help me. There's another one that couldn't help me. And there's another. So I must be just so unaddressable on my issues. You have to participate in this. Absolutely you have to participate in this. I wanted to skim down to, in that article of B12 in the New York Times 2016, there was a paragraph that caught my eye. A couple of paragraphs, actually. I don't want to spoil the article for you. Animal protein foods, meat, fish, milk, cheese, eggs. I'm just reading the article. And the only reliable natural dietary source of B12s. There you go. And below that, a century ago, researchers discovered that some 
most likely including Mary Todd Lincoln, had a condition called pernicious anemia, a deficiency of red blood cells ultimately identified as an autoimmune disease that causes a loss of stomach cells needed for B12 absorption. Mrs. Lincoln was known to behave erratically and was ultimately committed to a mental hospital. Depression, dementia, mental impairment are often associated with deficiency of B12 and his companion folate, especially in the elderly. So that's the other thing I didn't mention, but it's a, it's well established is as we get older, it is harder for us to extract from the food we eat the appropriate amount of nutrition. So I'm not saying, hey, that's the reason for supplementing. I'm saying that that's the reason for eating more nutritious food, a higher quantity of more nutritious food, and perhaps supplementing if you're doing labs and know what to supplement with, okay? So that's important to know. You can get macrocytic anemia and you can get pernicious anemia from B12 and folate deficiency. Okay, so that's enough on that. So now, really, what I wanted to go on to was the hormone panel. So the hormone panel, which is now the third panel that we test in this four part of our assessment, which really adds a lot of my being able to understand this person, is a test. I'm going to describe the test. So it's called the Dutch test, and it's come from analytic labs. So Dutch is basically dried urine comprehensive hormone panel. And the history of identifying hormones was, yes, you can do it by serum. You do a blood test and you you look for the whatever hormone you want or a lot of them. And that's what you do. It takes blood to do that. But usually what they do is they will give you a big orange container to go home and collect 24 hours of urine. And then they'll give you this a little vial that what you're going to do is shake up this big tank of urine of 24 hours. So it's, you know, homogenize it. And then you're going to pour off a small portion. So that small portion is going to be proportional, but it's going to be equal to representative of the 24 hours. Um, now you have this and that's what you take back in or you send it back into the company and it says, yes, of this, you know, five millimeter, five milliliter a sample, this is where you, you're from. This is what we found. Well, the problem with that is it's one measurement at the end of 24 hours. And so the Dutch test, which I like a lot, you don't do that. You basically pee on little strips four times in the course of the day. So basically, it's a 24-hour, really comes down to 22 hours, but it's a 22-hour urine test measured at four different places. So now we get a graph. Now we can see the rise and fall of cortisol and other hormones. There's a lot of research on this. And so one is, A, it's more convenient because when people do this at home and follow directions carefully, right, get their little strips in line with the times and so on, they send that back in and then we all get a report. I get a report and they get a report. And we go over that. So this is what we use. It's much more convenient than the big tank of urine and sending in the small piece because in the very least, it's the different times in which we can measure that amount of urine. Of course, those little pads are special to extract and preserve hormones in that. So that's what this is. It's extraordinary for what we get to see. So it's extraordinary. Let's say we're going to talk about men. It is actually going to flip to a report right away. Okay, I think it's good to talk in terms of some generic results in this case, and then we can get into some specifics. So most of the people that come that are through the program that want to go through such a comprehensive program as this is, they have to have a reason to do it. 
This can't just be, oh, I'm interested in all this information. Well, uh, that doesn't work for me, by the way. I found in having such people come into the program, if they're not going to do the work, which is you know, document their food diary and uh, attend the weekly meetings, it really is a drag on the rest of the group because these are small, intimate groups. So that always happened once that somebody was really not a good fit. But I always, the point was that people have a reason to be part of it. It's not just curiosity. So what we have with most women that come through this are usually peri or postmenopausal. That means their estrogens, plural, one, two, and three, are generally low. And what they'll have is, uh, I'm not going to get too much into it, but they'll have, it is expected sort of obviously they have lower estrogens. But what we're looking at there is for women to have a good balance of those estrogens and not just too much of one kind, not just too much of estradiol. And we also get to flip to a panel, both men and women have the same panel, to see how their estrogen is broken down. So we can measure that because if estrogen isn't broken down well, it becomes, for lack of a better word, a toxin. It can become cancer-causing. So then that's what we look at, breast cancers and prostate cancers and so on and so forth. So we look at the ratio in which it's degraded and the pathways. Very fascinating, very helpful, and I certainly believe at this point, very accurate. So we also get to sort of see their cortisol. How much cortisol are they producing? Are they adrenal exhausted? So in conventional medicine, if you are low on cortisol, you would that would call you Addison's disease. So Addison's disease is what JFK had. So that's actually under JFK that they had developed, could extract cortisol from pigs, and they would give shots to JFK for cortisol. So he beefed up. But before that, he had Addison's disease. Also, George W., the father, George W. Bush, earlier president, vice president under Reagan, and then president uh, he developed Addison's disease. And that just basically means you get wiped out very quickly. You have a very low ability to produce cortisol. So that's a black or white, and that's something you measure in serum. So anything when you talk about adrenal fatigue, what the heck does that mean? Well, uh, too much, by the way, uh, cortisol is is Cushing's syndrome, and you've probably heard of that. But there's a big gray area in between. There's obviously a normal in between. So we get to measure when people say, gee, I'm really always tired, we get to look at their cortisol. We get to look at their cortisone. One is kind of the reserve or the other. And so we we see the graph on this. Where are you in the graph? Are you reasonably normal? Or are you just like wiped out? And it's like, whoa, we got to look into this. So that's very helpful for women and for men. We look at testosterone. Is testosterone, and it's also broken down by ages. Is testosterone hellaciously low? So if it's hellaciously low, why is that? So we get to back it up and all estrogens come from testosterone. So we, in men that are diabetic, pre-diabetic, they're obese, they often have, you know, they have that chronic high blood sugar. So what happens is that that converts testosterone almost immediately to estrogen. So they come across as having a an effective low testosterone. Even though they make it, it just got converted so quickly. So they have correspondingly elevated estrogen. And that usually is one of the reasons why they have gynomastia, man boobs, if you will, for those reasons. So by working on the diet aspect, with or without supplements, we don't know where this person is, right, that I'm hypothetically talking about. By bringing down on a regular basis, the blood sugar, we bring down the insulin. And so consequently, the cortisol 
will drop as well. And you won't have that immediate conversion from testosterone to estrogen in men. So for women, it can be a lot of different things. So I mentioned one of the categories of people we looked at was infertility for women late women in the late 30s. It's like, well, you really need to work at the metabolic, for lack of a better word, mitochondrial aspects of infertility. What does that mean? Really track what your blood sugars are. Really track, you know, what your insulin levels are. If you have not started a ketogenic diet, then you should probably get a four-hour glucose tolerance test that measures insulin. So you get to see really how your body's responding. So if you're way off the charts, that would, to me, be interpreted as a primary cause for infertility. So how does elevated glucose to elevated insulin affect infertility? Well, basically, you are in the very gray area of PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. I mentioned that last time. So we can't say, oh, definitively, if you just, a lot of people don't have all the symptomology, so they can't technically fill that out. But when they start reducing those numbers down by changing their diet and or with or without supplements, they will most likely will get fertile, meaning they will most likely conceive. So it's a big deal that really has to be done. If you have tracked through, let's say, Freestyle Libra or a fancier continual glucose monitor, and or you've been tracking very consistently your glucometer through something like Keto Mojo or whatever, they were high and now they're a lot lower. Well, the chances are, you know, and you keep it at that level, the chances are you will conceive. So it's a big deal. How that works out in terms of hormones for such women is that they have a relative increase in testosterone. Everybody says that PCOS is about elevated testosterone. Well, it's, it's not really. It sort of is and it isn't. The reason it's a relative increase in testosterone is that you have actually a decreased amount of sex hormone binding globulin. So that the bus, that's the way I, I describe the bus that carries testosterone around, the binding globulin, you have fewer of those, which means of the testosterone that that woman's making, more of it's free. In men, which is interesting, kind of the opposite happens, is that they have decreased testosterone for a different reason, by the way. So that's why we look at this. So we can then look at the woman for infertility and say, now we're on to something here. You know, we now have these hormones with lineup measure and saying, you know, you don't have to do this weekly. It's a not a cheap test, once or twice a year, depending how urgent this is for that particular woman. And so that's how you would measure that. And so for men, on the other hand, you would say they have low testosterone, high estrogen, high estradiol, and you would do the same work even though you're changing a slightly different pathway. Interesting, eh? Okay, so that's how we look at and see the, let's say the man who's 100 pound overweight in his mid-50s and he has fatty liver, he would definitely have gynomastia, he would definitely have low testosterone and very high estrogen, so that relative difference, and that's changeable. And we'll see how the you know where his cortisol is. You know, if he's always feeding himself exogenous glucose by having a lot of carbs, processed carbs, his cortisol is going to be up on a regular basis, probably as well. Or if he's under a lot of stress, his cortisol is going to be up making the sugar, making the glucose. Okay. And so the last person we had obesity, we had oh yeah, the Crohn's. And so the Crohn's and the ulcerative colitis person, so for the autoimmune, they would more than likely, depending on their gender, 
they would have probably have a balance. They would not come in as a balanced testosterone, estrogen. We would look at their other androgens as well. We would see a, a big difference in in their distribution of hormones. But it would still come down to, you know, the, the, the cortisol levels would give it away. The graph in the course of the day, we'd be able to sort of see where are we too high or too low. It would still come down to backing away, getting the glucose down to the insulin down, and therefore the conversion of testosterone to estrogen be more normalized. And we might even have to look at what estrogens are being broken down, detoxified, if you will, in the various pathways to correct that as well. And we can. So gradually bringing them back in line with a healthier gut. And we're not how it was before. It's, oh, get a healthier gut, take probiotics. They are, as I explained before, temporarily helpful, but not long-term. You stop taking them, they're not that helpful. And you're sort of guessing, which one am I missing? I'm not against them. I'm saying they are not the be-all and end-all, but that is usually sort of the classic way of how do we fix the gut? Probiotics. Well, that's sure. It's basically, it's a medical way of looking at it. It's not really looking at the long-term, let's get behind this and just make a better microbiome. So you're not always having to nurse yourself back to life uh, with the autoimmune that you have with Crohn's. Uh, Ulcerative colitis may not, it doesn't always, and usually isn't uh, an autoimmune. So that's how we looked at that. And this is very, very helpful. So the people, so now people who are looking at their third panel and they're seeing how now their hormones are altered, right? So they saw nutrient deficiencies from their last panel. Now they're seeing there, some hormones are altered and they can see in, in what part of the day they're altered. You know, why do they feel really exhausted in the afternoon? Well, you look down to find out well, where is their cortisol or cortisone levels and so on. And how quickly can you clear your cortisol? That's the other. So there's a lot of little things you can look at that are very helpful. And so now they're going, hmm. And I'm also counseling them by saying, this is changeable. This is not you etched in stone and, oh my gosh, you're broken. No, this is you saying, these are the parameters we can pull back in and this is how we're going to do it. We also look at through this um, estrogen panel, we look at precursors for, for various neurotransmitters. And that's very helpful. It's helpful for them as well. They get to see, wow, you know, so let's say they were a strongly addicted personality. And then we would look at where are their, where's their dopamine metabolized the things that are basically go into making dopamine. Are they low on that? And therefore due to nutrient deficiencies, where's their melatonin? Is there a sleep issue going on? What about oxidative stress, norepinephrine, epinephrine? So these are also really helpful. So those are all relative to neurotransmitters. Uh, we also get to look at precursors for vitamin B6 and B12, glutathione, so that leads us up to the final pathway or the final panel, which is going to be the genome. We look at people's SNPs, singular nuclear polymorphisms, their mutations, their common mutations, not their esoteric mutations. So when I did the podcast a couple of weeks ago on Laron syndrome about the growth hormone receptor problem and that it, growth hormone did not stimulate IGF to be produced, and look what happened to this population of people that did not have growth hormone. That was an esoteric. That was a very rare esoteric mutation. So it's not about things like that. This is more about to call the common ones, the polymorphisms of SNPs. So we'll look to that. Okay, coming up on that one, and I hope you're getting an idea. You're seeing yourself through these different panels. I know you don't have actual results in front of you, but you can imagine. 
You know, I put out a few posts today about saying, you know, if you think your life is held together by the medications you're you're taking, you're completely wrong. You know, there's you're simply allowing nutrient deficiencies to pile up because of that. Short term, of course, medications are required and who would go against that? Long term is when they make the problem. So till next time, looking forward to talking to you. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they're overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.